The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. John uh, chapter 8, John chapter 8, and I want to read to you from verse 12 through 59. 12 through 59. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my my word finds no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works that your father did. They said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, 
Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my words, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. One of the reasons why I read uh, these discourses in full, I know it takes some time out of the message, but it's important that we understand the context of what we're reading. It's all too common today to just pull a verse from here or there and use it as a a peg to hang our own thoughts on rather than allowing Scripture to speak to us so that we will sit under it and learn from it understand the context in which Jesus said the, the things that he did. In our previous passage yesterday, we saw that this promise, the eschatological promise of life-giving water was, being, was fulfilled in Christ. There at the Feast of Tabernacles when he got up and said, I am the water of life. Here, Jesus tells us at the beginning of the discourse that he is the light of the world. Again, this is a fulfillment of prophecy when he says this. These are not just random statements. Zechariah 14, 7, we read, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. Christ's coming, as announced by the apostle Matthew, is a heralding of light into the darkness. And in the light of this staggering claim, there is a demand of his hearers for some kind of validation of what he was saying. We've already had Jesus in the context of John's gospel feed the multitude as the greater Moses, delivering people, as it were, from the new Egypt into a new promised land in himself. The rock which followed, which uh, Moses struck in the wilderness, which provided water for the children of Israel, typified Christ. And Christ says, I am this living water. Here he says, I'm the light. Just as the Israelites, as they moved through the wilderness, had their way lit by a pillar of fire by night, Christ here is held forth as the light. Now the Jews very correctly in our first few verses here, verses 15 through 18, tell him that if he's just speaking of, his own, of himself, he's bearing witness to himself. The law of God requires at least two witnesses. We've seen that this week already. The law requires corroboration. The problem in the context of the ministry of Jesus is that what if the basic issue that confronts human beings is that they are turned in on themselves in darkness, judging all things in terms of a human standard, which is what Jesus says here. Judging everything in terms of one's own experience, judging all things only in reference to human experience, that is judging everything in terms of the flesh. If light is shining in darkness, how can The light prove itself to be light except by shining. It's a difficult question. Jesus says, I know my origin. I know my destination. I know where I'm from. 
I know where I'm going. You could really say that with authority. I know precisely where I'm from and from my father. I know where I am going. His works, his signs had made all of this evident. He is the light, the psalmist says, in your light we see light. It's interesting, isn't it, that the very fact that we need, in terms of God's law, at least two witnesses to anything, tells us that the world is not ruled by the truth. We wouldn't need courts of law if the world was ruled by the truth, would we? We wouldn't need extra witnesses to corroborate something if the world in which we live was an unfallen world governed by truth. It's because it's governed by darkness and lies that we need corroboration. Because we can't rely on people to tell the truth. How can the truth then receive corroboration from a world of falsehood? How can the light be validated by the darkness? You see the problem? See, sometimes you read these discourses and you feel at times that Christ is not giving as straight an answer as he could have done. But when you actually understand the God of which Scripture speaks, begin to realize how absurd it would be for Jesus to appeal to the darkness to validate the light. How can the incarnate light be validated by a fallen world in darkness? That's why the light coming into the darkness is a time of confrontation, a time of judgment, and inevitably a time of crisis. Well, Jesus nonetheless recognizes the validity and authority of his own law in the context of the world, and so he says, well, if I witness to myself, your point is true, but it's not only I that witness, it's my Father who testifies and can confirms my witness, especially through the things that he has been doing. He has, he says, an inherent authority to judge. If he judges, he says, my judgment is righteous. He says, I could go around judging. My purpose has not been, my, I have not come into this world at present for judgment, but for salvation. That's the message of the New Testament. His father is the one who judges, he tells us later in the passage, although the father does hand all judgment to the son at the end of time. You know, we can't live without light, can we? We talked about not being able to live without food, without bread. We've talked about not being able to live without water. How long do you think you'd be able to live without light? Because you can't eat without light. Because nothing can live without light. If there's no light... Plants don't even survive. If plants don't survive, animals can't eat. So you can't eat plants or animals. Without light, you're dead. Christ says, I am the light of the world. Now, whether we recognize that or not, or accept that or not, even your ability to think and reason to light is, tonight is simply a reflective light been granted to you by God. He's the one who enlightens everyone. We saw that as we considered the prologue on Sunday and Monday. The response when Jesus appeals to his father as a witness to who he is was not a very genuine one. It's a sarcastic one. Where is your father? Well, one of the things that we have to say to people when they ask us who God is, is point to the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say about himself in John 14? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I am in the Father. The Father is in me. But we see the enormity of evil and the hatred of Jesus in this passage because we see again and again, as we saw yesterday, that any attempt to say, well, I'm going to try and validate Christ by the neutral facts all around me and through my uh, exposure to reality or through some other external point of reference that stands above and beyond God is impossible. There is no such thing as neutrality in reasoning. 
It's impossible to be neutral with respect to reasoning or thinking about anything. There are no neutral facts in the universe. Here's the simplest way of stating it. Either God is the creator, the sustainer, and the governor of all things, or he isn't. Now, if he is, then what area of knowledge stands outside of God's control? Which area of knowledge becomes then, to, to what aspect of life does this God become irrelevant? If he created all things, sustains all things, governs all things, you can't even have mathematics without God. There have been numerous theories about what numbers are. Some of the ancient Greeks believed that there was a world of numbers, an abstract world of numbers. It was called the world number theory. Others believed that uh, numbers are just subsets of logical relations. Others, like John Dewey, said, well, no, numbers are just tools. It's like a a spade in the garden. They don't refer to anything beyond themselves. They're just a tool that we use to help us describe reality. They have no referent beyond themselves. For you, two plus two may be four, but for the consistent Hindu philosopher, all things are at bottom one. And all distinctions, even numbers and logical relations, are illusory. You can't think about any subject in a neutral fashion. Those that say, now, let me just think about this for a minute. I've got to weigh the, the facts. And if it just comes down on the side of the light, I'll believe in the light. What warrants your use of reasoning at all in a universe without God? Do you think you can think rationally in a chance universe? Your brain is then the product of chance. Your mind is the random coalescing of atoms. In fact, in an atheistic universe, there is no mind. There is only brain. And all of your thoughts are simply the random fluctuation of atomic activity. Neurotransmitters firing and so forth. So as one uh, theologian put it in the context of a debate, he said... If we're going to debate about the existence of God and the atheist is right, we may as well just shake two pop cans now and whichever one fizzes most wins the debate. Because you've not got a basis for judging what is a valid from an invalid argument in a universe without God. It's just your atomic accident and my atomic accident. And my chaotic mind leads me to one conclusion and your atomic accident leads you to another conclusion. There's no basis on which to judge who's right and wrong. Don't ever think that the non-believer comes to the question of God neutral. We know we're creatures. We know we're not the creator. We sense moral accountability in our own being. This is why it was impossible and would have been ludicrous for Jesus to start appealing to the kind of philosophical arguments I just have. How does light validate itself in the darkness? It shines. You can't separate your being, your ontology, from your epistemology, from your understanding of knowledge. As one commentator put it concerning this passage, God is to be known in his revelation of himself. To know the revelation is to know the one who is revealed, and there is no other way of knowing. If they had known him, they would have not needed to ask the question. The question of who are you, Jesus, is asked in this passage. The crisis deepens because Jesus wants to differentiate himself from the world, and that is what is offensive about Jesus. If he'd just been another Socrates, just another teacher, it's not offensive. Just another person from within history who's maybe got some good advice about how to manipulate the universe, how to impose one's idea on the world. But here was a man who claimed to, to know where he was from and to know where he was going, to not be from this world. This is why the wisdom of the world ultimately is inadequate. Human philosophy is inadequate for plumbing the depths of who God is 
What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18? These will be familiar verses to you. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, that is philosophy, Sophia, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demands a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus speaks in verse 21 of his departure. I'm going away. You will seek me and you will die in your sin. People often think that uh, it's the Apostle Paul that says all the hard stuff and Jesus is just so approachable and so easy. You know, Jesus says the hardest things that we read in the New Testament. This theme again was drawn from the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 3.18 we read, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. That same man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. They choose deliberately to misunderstand what Jesus is saying about his departure. Will he kill himself? Can you believe this? They accuse Jesus of now being suicidal. He's going somewhere. We can't go there. What's he going to do? Kill himself? He's on his way to Gehenna. He's actually, of course, speaking of his death and of his resurrection at their hands, of course, his death, not by suicide. And in verse 24, he tells them again, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he you will die in your sins. You know, in the Greek text there, the word he does not appear. So what Jesus literally says is, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. These are sobering words, aren't they? Exodus 3.14, again, is where we go to understand this statement where God identifies himself as the I am. We can't understand the conclusion of this discourse unless we understand what God said to Moses in, in uh, Exodus three fourteen. He can be defined by nothing and called into judgment by no one because he created all things. He's the source of definition for all things. He names all things. All families in heaven and earth are named by him. Acts 17, he's appointed the boundaries of their habitation. He governs history in his providence. This is the God of Scripture. He's only known by his revelation of himself. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is basic to the doctrine of Christ. He is in history, but you can't define him naturalistically by history because he's from eternity. What does Jesus say? Verse 23, you are from beneath, I am from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. Their question in verse 25, I don't think in this context, is that of the honest seeker. Who are you? I mean, how, how many chapters now? How many signs? How many statements? Who are you? You know, my inclination would have been to go into a lengthy defense of 
the various miracles I'd performed and so on and so forth and delineate to them the clear evidence of my identity. Jesus doesn't do this. His response to their statement is to say the same as I have said from the beginning. The very things that John has been telling us from the beginning. These things are written, doesn't he conclude his gospel, that you might believe. Believing have life in his name. These statements, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins, actually demolishes a number of erroneous forms of thought that have arisen again in our time, even in the church. The first is called pluralism, and in my experience, it's become rampant in the modern church. What is pluralism? Well, we're reminded on all sides now, aren't we, that exclusivist claims about God and about the way of salvation don't have any place in our society. They're out of place. Humanistic scholars tell us this. And indeed, many pseudo-Christian scholars who still wear the garb of a Christian terminology but have evacuated the faith of its true meaning are determined to reduce the faith. In fact, I've been asked about one such author this week, Karen Armstrong, to reduce Scripture to mythology and to psychology. The objective of that is to escape history itself. Escape being bound by the reality of history and create an abstracted universal religion where you can have a nameless deity, a mysterious divinity, a sense of the numinous, sense of the beyond. In order for that to be true, you have to evacuate Scripture of all of its history. So you find, for example, such people saying, and I quote Karen Armstrong now, Uh, To ask whether the exodus from Egypt took place exactly as recounted in the Bible or to demand historical and scientific evidence to prove that it's factually true is to mistake the nature and purpose of this story. What's the purpose of this story for this particular woman? It's to inspire a mystical rite called the Passover. So you just make up a story. And through this mysticism, get yourself into contact with some abstracted idea of God. And when God is reduced to that kind of idea, an abstract idea, well, you pave the way for a total pluralism, which says any old God, basically, in layman's terms, any concept of God will do. We rule out the personal God of Scripture who would make himself known in history in the name of uh, pluralism and respect for other religions. But as one very important non-Western missiologist has written, observing the intellectual arrogance of these pluralists, he says that these pluralists savage pluralism in the name of defending it. What is put forward as a humble way of relating to the rich diversity of human religious traditions quickly turns into a reductionist onslaught on the factual affirmations of those traditions with the Semitic traditions taking the the brunt of the assault. What we are left with is a series of Procrustean beds on which a new elite of self-styled progressive theologians dismember the religions of the world. In other words, they approach the issue of world religions by saying, now let's, we've got to be fair to all religions. We can't say one is better than the other, more historical, more true than the other. And so in the name of respect for world religion, a slice them up, deny they've got any bearing on or any validity in terms of history, totally set aside the clear differences and distinctions between them to make them basically contradictory in the name, actually, of a new religion, a kind of humanistic ecumenism that believes it can subsume all of the world's religions into one great band of people singing Kumbaya to a nameless deity. But you will note that the most important thing about the New Testament, take the historian Luke as one example, who set out to write, he says, a most orderly account, my dear Theophilus, 
is that he is absolutely concerned with the specifics of the historical details of God's activity in history. It wasn't the apostles' subconscious following cleverly devised fables, Peter said, that came up with the person of Jesus Christ. On the contrary, it was the temporal, historical reality of the person of Christ to which they were witnesses. Precisely why the Athenian philosophers, some of them, sneered when Paul proclaimed the resurrection. They were philosophical dualists. They thought ridiculous that God should raise a corpse. You're supposed to escape the body, not be resurrected in one. And so they felt in their dualism that the notion of a historical revelation of God in creation was absurd. It's actually, though, many of these liberals who have recognized sometimes more clearly than many Christians the importance of the incarnation and these specific concrete claims of our Lord. This is what uh, John Hick writes. I studied John Hick back in college as a supposedly uh, Christian pluralist. It's a philosopher. This is what John Hick says. There is a direct line of logical entailment, listen carefully, from the premise that Jesus was God in the sense that he was God the Son, the second person of the divine trinity, living in a human life, to the conclusion that Christianity and Christianity alone was founded by God in person. And from this to the further conclusion that God must want all his human children to be related to him through his religion, which he has himself founded for us. And then to the final conclusion, outside Christianity, no salvation. Now he can see it. He can see what it means. That's why there is a determination to destroy Christianity by trying to remove or deny its historic reality in the person of Christ. That means that exclusivist claims that Jesus makes for himself here, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, sound very, very intolerant in our own time, don't they? How can you say that? It's not uncommon to hear people speak with admiration of Gandhi or the Dalai Lama's faith perspectives. Hans Kung, a Catholic theologian who has his head screwed on, said this, In one way or another, many Europeans and Americans would subscribe to Gandhi's words, I believe in the Bible as I believe in the Gita, which is Hindu scriptures. I regard all the great faiths of the world as equally true with my own. Now, that is an absurd statement, but for him, it's not. Because in Hinduism, I've already explained, there are no ultimate distinctions. It's a syncretistic religion. Hindus have 330 million gods in their pantheon of gods. That's a lot of gods. And you can include Jesus in amongst them because they're all simply expressions of the one, Brahman. So it's quite consistent for Gandhi to say that. And of course, a lot of Christians come along. Oh, isn't that nice? That's lovely, isn't it? Isn't that nice? All equally true with my own. How tolerant. Not realizing that that statement is a total denial of the core, all of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And it is a total denial of the claims of our Lord himself. Pluralism is essentially the view that no religion can make an absolute claim to uniqueness. But you know what? Every truth claim has a point of exclusion. It is impossible to assert anything as being true without excluding something. So even if you say, well, <clears throat> I'm of the Baha'i faith, everything is equally true. Every way of approaching God, whatever God means, is valid. That means, of course, that true Christianity is outside of the Baha'i faith because Christianity says there's only one way. Therefore, Christianity, by definition, must be false. So don't think that you're being tolerant or um, kind-hearted or especially generous when you think that you can soften or water down these claims because every truth claim has a point of exclusion. 
Direct result of this thinking is that apologetics is seen as a waste of time. Replace it with dialogue. Dialogue not with the intention of seeing somebody come to faith in our Lord and knowing salvation. But dialogue in terms of a learning experience. So what have I got to learn? I was reading a book at the book sale here by a man who identifies himself as a progressive evangelical telling me as I was reading it and I knew what I was going to be reading that interaction with these other faiths through dialogue is a learning experience for the Christian to begin to understand more what we can learn about God this is around this idea is around in the church Ronald Nash notes, when people adopt pluralism, they must abandon every core doctrine of the Christian faith. That's pluralism. Inclusivism is another one. I won't bore you with isms. This is my last one. This is not quite as hard-nosed as pluralism, but it basically says, look, you can only be saved through Jesus. That's true. But a lot of people don't know they're being saved by Christ. It's happening, they just don't realize it. Within the context of their own tradition, within the context of their own worship, of perhaps Allah or Brahman or trying to be good and righteous in their own way, trying to help others through various forms of devotion, even though they don't realize it, God's reconciliation, His salvific grace is already at work in their lives. So they don't deny that Christ is the way of salvation in name, they just say that lots of people are being saved by Christ. They just don't realize it. They don't know it. Because they're being redeemed by Christ to their own forms of religious worship. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul says that God overlooked these times of ignorance, but is now calling all men everywhere to repent. And that's what he said to pluralistic Greeks in Athens. But again, it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds nice. certainly spares us the chore of evangelism if people are just going to get there through Christ, even if they don't know his name. Lest you think, uh, what a waste of time, Joe. We all know that uh, this is absolutely true. We know that knowledge of Christ is necessary and that you need to appropriate the atonement to your own life for salvation. Well, the assumption is that because when you look at Scripture and we look at history, it seems that God hasn't organized history in terms of an equalitarian and egalitarian historiography, has he? The question is always this. Well, what about the person in Timbuktu or in Outer Mongolia who hasn't heard the message? How's that fair? This was an argument urged by early pagan critics of Christianity like Porphyry and uh, Julian the Apostate. It's not a new question. And this concept of salvation through all these different approaches to God, but nonetheless coming through Christ, one of the um, arguments you'll read for this, if you come across it, is the argument that Cornelius was a God-fearer in Acts chapter 10. And that his, the, uh, his offering had gone up before the Lord. But if his God-fearing attitude was enough to save him, why did Peter need to go and preach in his house the gospel? Why was Peter sent there? A pastor named Samir Salmanovic, who's part of the coordinating group for the Emergent Village, some of you will have heard of the Emergent Church literature, tells of his non-Christian friend Mark in New York, who said this, his friend Mark said this, to become a part of Christianity would be a moral step backwards. But this Mark, he says, senses transcendence to his existence. He believes it's a gift. He's an atheist, but he believes it's a gift. And he turns to this grace in his inner life, and grants himself a new beginning, though rejecting Christianity, and seeks to be a channel of good to others. Pastor Salmanovic says concerning this, that this unbeliever's opinion, and I quote, embodies the doctrine of creation, sin, salvation, and new life, 
That's Christ embedded in the life of Mark, present in substance rather than in name. So apparently you can be an atheist, reject Christ, turn from him, say that Christianity is a moral step backwards, and still be saved by Christ if you turn to an inner grace and grant yourself a new beginning. That's not Christianity in any way, shape, or form, is it? At least I don't recognize it. Unless you believe that I am he. Verse 27, they didn't understand that Jesus was speaking about his father. Their willful rebellion is now turning into blindness. See, God for these men was a great idea. Not the living God. They didn't even really believe that Abraham was still alive, you'll see later from the text. A lot of people today, of course, are happy with the ideas of the afterlife, aren't they? Amazing when, you, when surveys are conducted in Canada and you've got huge swathes of people who don't believe in Christ, don't attend church and so on and so forth, but they still believe they're going to heaven. Amazing, isn't it? The vast majority of people think they're going to heaven. They've lived a moral life and so on and so forth. They're happy with those ideas of a divine being who's an egotistical projection of man's permissive ideal. Permissive God who just benevolently wishes everyone to be happy, having a good time, doing whatever they like. And he'll just receive us into the afterlife. This is a pagan concept. What we won't tolerate is the living God of Scripture. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Jesus then comes in verse 29 to the fulcrum of history. He's not left me alone, for I do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority. He points them to the cross. Not that they were going to understand it at this point, but the fulcrum of history is found in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What didn't that prove to be the case for the centurion who stood by when Jesus was being crucified? Surely this man was the son of God. You know, in the time of the centurion, it was the emperor who claimed to be the son of God. In fact, when Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, For there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which you must be saved. He was directly applying a quotation that had been used concerning the emperor. And he applied it to the Lord Jesus. This God of Scripture, the Christ who hung on the cross, is not the cold monad of humanistic projection. But the question of who are you remains an abiding one for many today. God is an idea? Fine. There are people today that say they're on the search for the historical Jesus. Come across these people, publish a lot of books, a lot of it filters down into our popular literature. You can pick it up at the airport. Who's the historical Jesus? This is a misnomer. We know who the historical Jesus is. He's right there in the eyewitness accounts. It's the historical Jesus. The groups like the Jesus Seminar, they say, oh, we don't like that. We don't like this. That can't be right. Gosh, don't like that idea. He couldn't possibly have said that. No, he never did that. No way. Passing the hat round, voting on what Jesus did or didn't say or did or didn't do. Believing that they then arrive at the historical Jesus. What's the point of this? It's not to find the Jesus of history. It's to reduce Jesus to history. To say that he was just an ordinary man. He's not the I am. If you reject Christ's statement, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. All that's left to you is political correctness. The spirit of the age will determine the creed of the time. Whatever people are believing at the time, that will define our type of Christianity. Whatever's in the air. We've got evangelicals today pronouncing a moratorium on the issue of sexuality. Let's just see what people decide about it. Because the spirit of the age in a concept of an evolving God defines the creed of the time. 
But the norming norm for the true Christian is always Scripture. We come back to the Word of God. We come back to Scripture. Without that, what you've got is the mind of man expressed through the philosopher kings, the elite of our time. Political correctness. This is what you will believe. This is what you can say. This is what's permitted in the public sphere. This is what is not. A gentleman here this week has told me as a paramedic that sitting down at work, on one side of the table, a Muslim reading the Quran. His side of the table, he's a Christian reading his Bible. Guess who's told to put their Bible away and not get it out again? Because the spirit of the age will dictate the creed of the time if you deny that I am he. The truth will be one thing one week and another the next. Truth and freedom, though, are related. Let's begin to draw this to a conclusion. Jesus begins to speak of the truth as the venom of the crowd of these teachers, rather the authorities, reaches a fever pitch. In verse 32, what does he say? The Jews, 31, picked up stones again to stone him. Where am I here? I'm in the wrong place. <clears throat> so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, some believed, you see, at the end of verse 30, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Freedom in truth in Jesus Christ. Now, when he said this about freedom, they took offense immediately. We're Abraham's children. How can you say we'll be free? We've never been slaves to anyone. Well, that was an absurd statement in the context of their present circumstances and also their own history. They'd repeatedly been slaves, but they were probably referring to the inherent resistance that Judaism provided, and that was certainly true. They had preserved something of Jewish belief and culture despite numerous conquests and subjections, a kind of inner resistance. But what kind of truth and freedom was Jesus referring to? Leslie Newbigin writes, the knowledge in question is that personal knowledge of him who is the truth, which grows out of believing and which is itself a sharing in the eternal life of God, whose spirit is the spirit of truth. He who is truth and in whom is no lie is alone able to deliver us who are captive to the power of the lie. Jesus goes on to tell us that when we're outside of the truth, we're not free, we're slaves. We're slaves to the lie because we're slaves in the end to sin. And that's why he begins to go on to discuss the difference between a son and a slave. We are liberated to true life and true light in the person of Christ. They go on to insist that they're Abraham's children. But Jesus tells them, your actions reveal a very different paternity than the one you're claiming. You say you're the children of Abraham. Genetically, he didn't dispute it. Jesus was a Jew. You're children of Abraham, sure. In the sense that you are genetically of Abraham, but there's nothing about you, says Jesus, that reminds me of Abraham. After all, Abraham was described as the friend of God, wasn't he? If they belonged to Abraham's family, they would know and recognize the Lord. Why? Well, we're told in verse 56, actually. We'll come to this in just a moment. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. If they really were of their father Abraham, they'd recognize Abraham's seed, the promised one. But since they were of a different paternity, a different source of authority, they didn't recognize him. And what was that source? Satan. That's a shocker, isn't it? Imagine you're a Jew, you're a teacher of the law, you're a child of Abraham, and you're told that actually your true father is the devil himself. Well, Genesis 3.15 tells us, of course, not the gen genetically of Satan, but Genesis 3.15 tells us that there is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the children of faith, the children of disobedience. There's no truth in him. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. You can't invoke Abraham, says Jesus. Don't appeal to Abraham. You don't do the works of Abraham. Jesus there insists on the unity of faith and action. 
Friends, we have to insist on that as believers. You can't profess to be part of the covenant and then deny it in the way we live. Can't say, I'm of Christ. And then live as though we have another parentage. Modern antinomians, which means anti-law, are either explicit or, or implicit in their denial of this unity between faith and action. You can't be a Christian while your condition of life, your habit of life, your norming norm in life is disobedience to the commandments of God. It's impossible. The Christian loves righteousness. He or she falls, makes mistakes. But in our hearts, like King David, we'll pray, Lord, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Oh, how I love your law, and on it I meditate day and night. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Psalm 1. The problem, the basic problem, was the problem of the world. What do they do? Their response to Jesus' correct statement about their claims concerning Abraham was insults. We weren't born of fornication. Now you begin to see why their earlier questions weren't genuine. They are believing the rumor about Jesus. What's the rumor about Jesus? He's a bastard. An early rumor circulated actually amongst the pagans that uh, Jesus was the product of a Roman soldier and a Jewish woman, a peasant girl. They were repeating this rumor. They couldn't answer Jesus' challenge, but the problem was in the world. Jesus tells them, verse 42 through 44, if, you were a, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Because you cannot bear to hear my word. You see, the problem, as and Michael Haken referred to it this week, is in the world. The problem of the world. What Jesus does here, by the way, and I go back to something I said earlier in the week, is destroys any partisan sense that there is a special salvation for the physical offspring of Abraham outside of Christ. Fit that into dispensational eschatology. You think you're Abraham's children? You're of your father the devil. He was speaking to the Pharisees of Pharisees, Jews of Jews. It's possible to be of the offspring of Abraham, yet of the seed of the serpent. Salvation is not based on ethnic privilege. It's not based on your genes. It's whether you're part of the covenant of promise by embracing the one who is the seed of the woman, the deliverer, the Christ, who is the light of the world. And what Jesus is reminding of us again here is that in a distinctive Christian understanding, a person's moral nature determines what they're prepared to hear. Remember when Stephen was preaching just before his death? said they literally, their faces became enraged. They put their fingers in their ears. We will only hear and tolerate what our moral nature will allow. Newbegin calls this the terrible reality of the bondage of the human will. He goes on to define sin in the human problem where God is rejected. He says this, human culture in all its forms, philosophy, science, techniques, economics, politics, and aesthetics, the world represents on a grand scale man's attempt to understand and organize his life in such a way that he is in control of it. Now, of course, there is a Christian approach to economics, techniques, politics, aesthetics, philosophy. But when they are done without God, without reference to God, they are an attempt for total control. That's why the totalizing state increasingly makes claims on every aspect of our lives. Social scientists want to control the future, govern it, predestine it. When we insist on being our own God, our own source of morality, our own source of truth, if we hear Christ, we'll say, we'll only hear it, actually, we'll only hear his word as part of the world, as part of a, a bunch of other claimants. Jesus is one amongst many. 
we're unable to hear the logos, the word, if we remain totally man-centered. That's what Jesus is saying. And his presence demands the abandonment of our egos and our egocentric enterprise and a surrender to who he is. It's actually questions some of our assumptions about evangelism, doesn't it? When Jesus says in verses 33 and 34 here, sorry, 43 and 44, why do you not understand my speech? You're not able to listen to my word. You're of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. We've often said, I've said this week that we often think that the basic problem we're facing in witnessing to the non-believer is their philosophy, their science, their evidences, and so forth, but it's not. The basic problem is a moral bondage of the will right there in the heart because the source is the lie how can a lie ever embrace truth if you're defined by a lie how can the lie embrace truth well there's only one way my friends Jesus tells us about it in John 3 how is salvation possible he tells Nicodemus unless a man is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God My sheep, Jesus said, hear my voice. Those who are of God receive the truth with gladness. And John tells us in 1 John 3, 8, that he has been revealed to destroy the works of the evil one so that his voice will be heard throughout the earth. People will hear it, hear the voice of the Son of God, and live. And live. I conclude with this. For this statement... Jesus receives a final insult, one parting one for good measure. He's accused of being a semi-pagan, a Samaritan, as well as being demon-possessed now. So they're just multiplying. He's born of fornication. Now he's a Samaritan, and he's got a demon. Jesus points out that their dishonor is a direct dishonoring of his father. He doesn't repay reviling for reviling. He says, you dishonor me, you dishonor my father. Jesus unites there, here, now, truth to his person. Not just truth, divinity itself to his person. Dishonor Christ, you dishonor God. What does that say about other religions that claim to honor God? If you dishonor Christ, you're not honoring God in any way, shape, or form. As one commentator has noted, listen to this carefully, my friends. I know we're almost done. It's late, but listen to this. Our Lord not only grounds truth on morality, but on his person as God incarnate. As the truth of all creation, of all being, there can be no freedom in God's creation except on God's terms. So that every effort to find freedom and truth apart from the triune God is a step towards death. Truth alone can make us free and alive because Christ is the truth. This is the problem of living outside of the Lord Jesus. You pursue happiness and truth anywhere else, it's like banging your head against a brick wall because you're trying to change God's reality. If you don't break the law of gravity, eventually the law of gravity breaks you. This is God's world. You're God's creature. The Westminster Confession puts it this way. The chief end of man is to glorify, is to worship God and enjoy him forever. That's the purpose of our lives. Until you discover that, you've never discovered what it means to be a human being. That's what it means to be human. That's what it means to discover truth and freedom. And all those longings that are part of the human condition, Jesus says they're answered right here. I'm the light of the world. Jesus makes then an astonishing claim for himself. If anyone keeps my word, verse 51, he shall never taste death. Now, I want to point you to C.S. Lewis's trilemma here. Some of you have heard of it. You may have heard it in the form of mad, bad, or God. Lewis talked about liar, lunatic, or Lord. One of the things you often hear people say about Jesus is, I accept he was a nice guy. He was a good teacher. He said some nice things. You know, golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think Jesus was nice. I think he was a good teacher. You know, C.S. Lewis, the brilliant Oxford professor, one of the most brilliant Christians in the 20th century, century for sure, 
And if you've never read Mere Christianity or The Problem of Pain, or one of Lewis's major apologetic works, I encourage you to do so. He pointed out that given that Jesus Christ is not a legend, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's exactly who he claimed to be. He says, Jesus never left open to us the option of saying that he was just a nice, good teacher. Because anybody, Lewis said, who claimed the things Jesus claimed is either a madman on the level of a lunatic who claims he's a poached egg, or he's a liar and the fabricator of the greatest myth in the history of civilization, or he's precisely who he claims to be. That's what we've got to decide about the Lord Jesus. You cannot put Jesus into the context of a man who's just a nice chap. He who believes my word will never taste death. They thought he's lost his mind. Abraham's dead. The prophets are dead. Who do you think you are? That's what they said to him. Literally. Who on earth do you think you are? The ancient Greeks, the pagans, believed that death was a bitter thing. Shades, ghosts, pallid ghosts. That was the destiny of human beings. You find that in Homer. Jesus says, whoever believes my word shall not taste death. Scripture tells us precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints doesn't mean we can't recognize the tragedy of death in the world. We should, in fact. Sir Walter Riley, the English commander and poet, he said, even such is time which takes, takes in trust our hopes, our youth, and all we have and pays us back with age and dust in the dark and silent grave when we have wandered all our ways shuts up the story of our days that the Lord shall raise me up. Tolkien puts into the mouth of Gandalf a statement about who's read or Lord of the Rings or watched the movie. Put your hand up. If you haven't, put your hand up. Don't be ashamed. Shame on you. Put your hands down. <clears throat> he says, Gandalf says at one point in the movie, a key point in the movie, when he's asked about what lies beyond, he says, the gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it white shores and beyond the far green country to a swift sunrise. The great divorce, Lewis, reverses the pagan understanding and says that the eternal state will be one in which we are more solid and real than we've ever known. Not pallid, insubstantial ghosts, but truly human. The Lord reveals again that moral character is central. Jesus concludes with the self-designation that he has already used and refers us back to Exodus 3, 14 through 15. When Jesus claims that Abraham rejoiced to see his day and was glad, the Jews says, you're not 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? Have you lost your mind? Jesus could say, think about this. Is this the words of a good teacher if he's lying? Verily, verily, I say to you. Literally, the Greek says, Amen, amen, I say to you. You cannot say it any more clearly or emphatically. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the life. You know, the Apostle Paul says the gospel was preached unto Abraham in Galatians. Abraham believed God's promise that was credited to him as righteousness. He saw it and he was glad. What a privilege we have. The genial tolerance then of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes is at an end. And they pick up stones to stone him to death. Why? Because they knew exactly what he was saying, even if you don't. They knew precisely what he had just claimed about himself, and that's exactly why they picked up stones to kill him. 
That's why Jesus said this, I've not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. He didn't mean he was a militaristic leader. He says, this word will separate mother from father, mother from daughter, father and son, brother from brother. There is this message of John's gospel inescapably divides people. Because you either pick up stones to kill him or you fall at his feet and worship him. In human history, we have spent a lot of time, even in theology, the death of God school of theology. Fascinating. We think that by coming up with ideas in which we kill God in our theology, or maybe kill Christians, we'll kill the God of Scripture. We can't kill him. Humanism has already lost, my friends. They just don't realize it yet. Humanism has lost because even in this long war against God, Christ will have the victory. His time had not yet come, so he passed out of the temple. Because Christ's death was not in their hands. It was at the time of God's own choosing. I am the light of the world. If you believe in me, you shall not walk in darkness, but have the light that leads to life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is indeed the Lord, the light of the world. We know that he couldn't have made himself any plainer, any clearer about who he was. Lord, for those of us who are struggling and wrestling with this, even with resentment toward Christ in our hearts, soften our hearts, I pray. Incline our hearts to your testimonies. For Lord, for those of us who are walking with you, long to serve you, we thank you that you've promised we shall not taste bitterness of death but we shall be raised up with Job we can say in my flesh I will see God I know that my redeemer lives and that he shall stand in the last day upon the earth thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ thank you that in him is life that life is the light of men help us to walk in the light as he is in the light so that we will not stumble and help us, Lord, to be the bearers of this light to our friends, our family, our neighbors, our colleagues, to all those who do not know you. Give us the grace to be a light in a dark place. You've said that you have loved this world and you've given your son to redeem it. Even though your word brings division, we know that your purpose is that men may be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Work through us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.